Section 3 of the Natural History, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Natural History, Volume 3 by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 3. Chapter 18. Happy Omens Sometimes Afforded by a Swarm of Bees and then too it is that they afford presages of both the private and public interest, clustering as they do like a bunch of grapes upon houses or temples, presages, in fact, that are often accounted for by great events. Bees settled upon the lips of Plato when still an infant even, announcing thereby the sweetness of that persuasive eloquence for which he was so noted. Bees settled too in the camp of the chieftain Drusus when he gained the brilliant victory at Arbalo, a proof indeed that the conjectures of soothsayers are not by any means infallible, seeing that they are of opinion that this is always of evil augury. When their leader is withheld from them, the swarm can always be detained, and when lost it will disperse and take its departure to find other kings. Without a king, in fact, they cannot exist, and it is with the greatest reluctance that they put them to death when there are several. They prefer, too, to destroy the cells of the young ones, if they find reason to despair of providing food. In such case, they then expel the drones. And yet with regard to the last, I find some doubts are entertained, and that there are some authors who are of the opinion that they form a peculiar species, like that bee, the very largest among them all, which is known by the name of the thief, because it furtively devours the honey. It is distinguished by its black colour and the largeness of its body. It is a well-known fact, however, that the bees are in the habit of killing the drones. These last have no king of their own, but how it is that they are produced without a sting is a matter still undetermined. In a wet spring the young swarms are more numerous, in a dry one the honey is most abundant. If food happens to fail the inhabitants of any particular hive, the swarm makes a concerted attack upon a neighbouring one with a view of plundering it. The swarm that is thus attacked at once ranges itself in battle array, and if the beekeeper should happen to be present, that side which perceives itself favoured by him will refrain from attacking him. They often fight too for other reasons as well, and the two generals are to be seen drawing up their ranks in battle array against their opponents. The dispute generally arises in culling from the flowers, when each, the moment that it is in danger, summons its companions to its aid. The battle, however, is immediately put to an end by throwing dust among them, or raising a smoke, and if milk or honey mixed with water is placed before them, they speedily become reconciled. Chapter 19. The Various Kinds of Bees There are field bees also, and wild bees, ungainly in appearance, and much more irascible than the others, but remarkable for their laboriousness and the excellence of their work. Of domestic bees there are two sorts. The best are those with short bodies speckled all over, and of a compact round shape. Those that are long and resemble the wasp in appearance are an inferior kind, and of these last, the very worst of all, are those which have the body covered with hair. In Pontus there is a kind of white bee which makes honey twice a month. On the banks of the river Thermodon there are two kinds found, one of which makes honey in the trees, the other underground. They form a triple row of combs and produce honey in the greatest abundance. Nature has provided bees with a sting, which is inserted in the abdomen of the insect. 
There are some who think that at the first blow which they inflict with this weapon they will instantly die, while others, again, are of opinion that such is not the case, unless the animal drives it so deep as to cause a portion of the intestines to follow, and they assert also that after they have thus lost their sting they become drones and make no honey, being thus castrated, so to say, and equally incapable of inflicting injury and of making themselves useful by their labours. We have instances stated of horses being killed by bees. They have a great aversion to bad smells, and fly away from them, a dislike which extends to artificial perfumes even, hence it is that they will attack persons who smell of unguents. They themselves also are exposed to the attacks of wasps and hornets, which belong to the same class, but are of a degenerate nature. These wage continual warfare against them, as does a species of gnat which is known by the name of mulio. Swallows too, and various other birds prey upon them. Frogs lie in wait for them when in quest of water, which in fact is their principal occupation at the time they are rearing their young. And it is not only the frog that frequents ponds and streams that is thus injurious to them, but the bramble frog as well, which will come to the hives even in search of them, and crawling up to the entrance, breathe through the apertures, upon hearing which a bee flies to the spot and is snapped up in an instant. It is generally stated that frogs are proof against the sting of the bee. Sheep too are peculiarly dangerous to them, as they have the greatest difficulty in extricating themselves from the fleece. The smell of crabs, if they happen to be cooked in their vicinity, is fatal to them. Chapter 20. The Diseases of Bees Bees are also by nature liable to certain diseases of their own. The sign that they are diseased is a kind of torpid, moping sadness. On such occasions they are to be seen bringing out those that are sick before the hives and placing them in the warm sun, while others again are providing them with food. Those that are dead they carry away from the hive and attend the bodies, paying their last duties, as it were, in funeral procession. If the king should happen to be carried off by the pestilence, the swarm remains plunged in grief and listless inactivity. It collects no more food and ceases to issue forth from its abode. The only thing that it does is to gather around the body and to emit a melancholy humming noise. Upon such occasions the usual plan is to disperse the swarm and take away the body, for otherwise they would continue listlessly gazing upon it and so prolong their grief. Indeed, if due care is not taken to come to their aid, they will die of hunger. It is from their cheerfulness, in fact, and their bright and sleek appearance that we usually form an estimate as to their health. There are certain maladies also which affect their productions. When they do not fill their combs, the disease under which they are labouring is known by the name of claros, and if they fail to rear their young, they are suffering from the effects of that known as blapsigonia. Chapter 21. Things that are noxious to bees. Echo, or the noise made by the reverberation of the air, is also injurious to bees, as it dismays them by its redoubled sounds. Fogs also are noxious to them. Spiders, too, are especially hostile to bees when they have gone so far as to build their webs within the hive, the death of the whole swarm is the result. The common and ignoble moth, too, that is to be seen fluttering about a burning candle is deadly to them, and that in more ways than one. It devours the wax and leaves its order behind it, from which the maggot known to us as the terido is produced, besides which, wherever it goes, it drops the down from off its wings, and thereby thickens the threads of the cobwebs. The terido is also engendered in the wood of the hive, and then it proves especially destructive to the wax. Bees are the victims also of their own greediness, for when they glut themselves overmuch with the juices of the flowers in the spring season more particularly, they are troubled with flux and looseness, 
olive oil is fatal to not only bees but all other insects as well and more especially if they are placed in the sun after the head has been immersed in it sometimes too they themselves are the cause of their own destruction as for instance when they see preparations being made for taking their honey and immediately fall to devouring it with the greatest avidity in other respects they are remarkable for their abstemiousness and they will expel those that are inclined to be prodigal and voracious no less than those that are sluggish and idle their own honey even may be productive of injury to them for if they are smeared with it on the fore part of the body it is fatal to them such are the enemies so numerous are the accidents and how small a portion of them have i here enumerated to which a creature that proves so bountiful to us is exposed in the appropriate place we will treat of the proper remedies for the present the nature of them is our subject chapter twenty two how to keep bees to the hive the clapping of the hands and the tinkling of brass afford bees great delight and it is by these means that they are brought together a strong proof in fact that they are possessed of the sense of hearing when their work is completed their offspring brought forth and all their duties fulfilled they still have certain formal exercises to perform ranging abroad throughout the country and soaring aloft in the air wheeling round and round as they fly and then when the hour for taking their food has come returning home the extreme period of their life supposing that they escape accident and the attacks of their enemies is only seven years a hive it is said never lasts more than ten there are some persons who think that when dead if they are preserved in the house throughout the winter and then exposed to the warmth of the spring sun and kept all day in the ashes of fig tree wood they will come to life again chapter twenty three methods of renewing the swarm these persons say also that if the swarm is entirely lost it may be replaced by the aid of the belly of an ox newly killed covered over with dung Virgil also says that this may be done with the body of a young bull, in the same way that the carcass of the horse produces wasps and hornets, and that of the ass beetles, nature herself affecting these changes of one substance into another. But in all these last, sexual intercourse is to be perceived as well, that the characteristics of the offspring are pretty much the same as those of the bee. Chapter 24. Wasps and Hornets, Animals Which Appropriate What Belongs to Others wasps build their nests of mud in lofty places and make wax therein hornets on the other hand build in holes or underground with these two kinds the cells are also hexagonal but in other respects though made of the bark of trees they strongly resemble the substance of a spider's web their young also are found at irregular intervals and are of unshapely appearance while one is able to fly another is still a mere pupa and a third only in the maggot state it is in the autumn too and not in the spring that all their young are produced and they grow during the full moon more particularly the wasp which is known as the ichinomon a smaller kind than the others kills one kind of spider in particular known as the phalangium after which it carries the body to its nest covers it over with a sort of gluey substance and then sits and hatches from it its young in addition to this they are all of them carnivorous while on the other hand bees will touch no animal substance whatever wasps more particularly pursue the larger flies and after catching them cut off the head and carry away the remaining portion of the body wild hornets live in the holes of trees and in winter like other insects keep themselves concealed their life does not exceed two years in length it is not unfrequently that their sting is productive of an attack of fever and there are authors who say that thrice nine stings will suffice to kill a man of the other hornets which seem not to be so noxious there are two kinds the working ones which are smaller in size and die in the winter and the parent hornets which live two years 
these last indeed are quite harmless in spring they build their nests which have generally four entrances and here it is that the working hornets are produced after these have been hatched they form other nests of larger size in which to bring forth the parents of the future generation from this time the working hornets begin to follow their vocation and apply themselves to supplying the others with food the parent hornets are of larger size than the others and it is very doubtful whether they have a sting as it is never to be seen protruded these races too have their drones some persons are of opinion that all these insects lose their stings in the winter neither hornets nor wasps have a king nor do they ever congregate in swarms but their numbers are recruited by fresh offspring from time to time chapter twenty five the bombyx of assyria a fourth class of this kind of insect is the bombyx which is a native of assyria and is of larger size than any of those which have been previously mentioned they construct their nests of a kind of mud which has the appearance of salt and then fasten them to a stone where they become so hard that it is scarcely possible to penetrate them with a dart even in these nests they make wax in larger quantities than bees and the grub which they then produce is larger chapter twenty six the larvae of the silkworm who first invented silk cloths there is another class also of these insects produced in quite a different manner these last spring from a grub of larger size with two horns of very peculiar appearance the larva then becomes a caterpillar after which it assumes the state in which it is known as bombylus then that called nechidalus and after that in six months it becomes a silkworm these insects weave webs similar to those of the spider the material of which is used for making the more costly and luxurious garments of females known as bombycina pamphile a woman of cos the daughter of palatia was the first person who discovered the art of unravelling these webs and spinning a tissue therefrom indeed she ought not to be deprived of the glory of having discovered the art of making vestments which while they cover a woman at the same moment reveal her naked charms chapter twenty seven the silkworm of cos and how the cohen vestments are made the silkworm too is said to be a native of the isle of cos where the vapours of the earth give new life to the flowers of the cypress the terebinth the ash and the oak which have been beaten down by the showers at first they assume the appearance of small butterflies with naked bodies but soon after being unable to endure the cold they throw out bristly hairs and assume quite a thick coat against the winter by rubbing off the down that covers the leaves by the aid of the roughness of their feet this they compress into balls by carding it with their claws and then draw it out and hang it between the branches of the trees making it fine by combing it out as it were last of all they take and roll it round their bodies thus forming a nest in which they are enveloped it is in this state that they are taken after which they are placed in earthen vessels in a warm place and fed upon bran a peculiar sort of down soon shoots forth upon the body on being clothed with which they are sent to work upon another task the cocoons which they have begun to form are rendered soft and pliable by the aid of water and are then drawn out into threads by means of a spindle made of a reed nor in fact have the men even felt ashamed to make use of garments formed of this material in consequence of their extreme lightness in summer for so greatly have manners degenerated in our day that so far from wearing a cuirass a garment even is found to be too heavy the produce of the assyrian silkworm however we have till now left to the women only chapter twenty eight spiders the kinds that make webs the materials used by them in so doing it is by no means an absurdity to append to the silkworm an account of the spider a creature which is worthy of our especial admiration 
There are numerous kinds of spiders, however, which it will not be necessary here to mention from the fact of their being so well known. Those that bear the name of phalangium are of small size, with the body spotted and running to a point. Their bite is venomous, and they leap as they move from place to place. Another kind again is black, and the forelegs are remarkable for their length. They have all of them three joints in the legs. The smaller kind of wolf spider does not make a web, but the larger ones make their holes in the earth and spread their nets at the narrow entrance thereof. A third kind again is remarkable for the skill which it displays in its operations. These spin a large web, and the abdomen suffices to supply the material for so extensive a work. Whether it is that, at stated periods, the excrements are largely secreted in the abdomen, as Democritus thinks, or that the creature has in itself a certain faculty of secreting a peculiar sort of woolly substance. How steadily does it work with its claws, how beautifully rounded, and how equal are the threads as it forms its web, while it employs the weight of its body as an equipose. It begins at the middle to weave its web, and then extends it by adding the threads in rings around, like a warp upon the woof, forming the meshes at equal intervals, but continually enlarging them as the web increases in breadth. It finally unites them all by an indissoluble knot. With what wondrous art does it conceal the snares that lie in wait for its prey in its chequered nettings? How little, too, would it seem that there is any such trap laid in the compactness of its web and the tenacious texture of the woof, which would appear of itself to be finished and arranged by the exercise of the very highest art? How loose, too, is the body of the web as it yields to the blasts, and how readily does it catch all objects which come in its way? You would fancy that it had left, quite exhausted, the thrums of the upper portion of its net unfinished where they are spread across. It is with the greatest difficulty that they are to be perceived, and yet the moment that an object touches them, like the lines of the hunter's net, they throw it into the body of the web. With what architectural skill, too, is the hole arched over, and how well defended by a nap of extra thickness against the cold. How carefully, too, it retires into a corner, and appears intent on anything but what it really is, all the while that it is so carefully shut up from view that it is impossible to perceive whether there is anything within or not. And then, too, how extraordinary the strength of the web! When is the wind ever known to break it, or what accumulation of dust is able to weigh it down? The spider often spreads its web right across between two trees, when plying its art and learning how to spin, and then as to its length, the thread extends from the very top of the tree to the ground, while the insect springs up again in an instant from the earth and travels aloft by the self-same thread, thus mounting at the same moment and spinning its threads. When its prey falls into its net, how on the alert it is, and with what readiness it runs to seize it. Even though it should be adhering to the very edge of its web, the insect always runs instantly to the middle, as it is by these means that it can most effectually shake the web and so successfully entangle its prey. When the web is torn, the spider immediately sets about repairing it, and that so neatly that nothing like patching can ever be seen. The spider lies in wait even for the young of the lizard, and after enveloping the head of the animal, bites its lips, a sight by no means unworthy of the amphitheatre itself, when it is one's good fortune to witness it. Presages also are drawn from the spider, for when a river is about to swell, it will suspend its web higher than usual. In calm weather, these insects do not spin, but when it is cloudy, they do, and hence it is that a great number of cobwebs is a sure sign of showery weather. It is generally supposed that it is the female spider that spins, and the male that lies in wait for prey, thus making an equal division of their duties. Chapter 29. The Generation of Spiders 
spiders couple backwards and produce maggot-like eggs, for I ought not to defer making some mention of this subject, seeing in fact that of most insects there is hardly anything else to be said. All these eggs they lay in their webs, but scattered about as they leap from place to place while laying them. The phalangium is the only spider that lays a considerable number of them in a hole, and as soon as ever the progeny is hatched it devours its mother, and very often the male parent as well, for that too aids in the process of incubation. These last produce as many as 300 eggs, the others a smaller number. Spiders take three days to hatch their eggs. They come to their full growth in 28 days. End of section 3